Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number 14 of History of Photography. This class session quite a bit shorter than the previous class sessions. We talked briefly about the great photographer, curator, writer about photography, John Zarkowski, and then uh, the students in class watched a great film about Zarkowski, and I'll leave a link to that film in the podcast uh, uh, show notes at photohistory.jeffkurto.com. So here we are joining our class in progress. Zarkowski and how to see. So over the next just very few minutes, I'm going to try to answer this question, which is, what do the following photographers all have in common? So I'm going to sort of toss up here a bunch of different photographers. And uh, so the question is, what do these photographers all have in common with one another? So first of all, Joel Myrowitz. Myrowitz, who said, I'd been working in both color and black and white for a long time, but shifted to using only color on the street. At the beginning of the 1970s, I'd been seeking a high quality of description using Kodachrome 35mm film, which was an extraordinary material in those days. However, I couldn't get what I wanted on a print. The print had to be a dye transfer, and they were terribly expensive. Dye transfer printing is now no longer available because the materials are no longer available, and it was generally thought of as being one of the most beautiful color processes ever to have been invented, uh, but then Kodak stopped making the materials, uh, and uh, it's now since died away. But uh, So Myrowitz said he really liked making dye transfer prints, but they were very expensive, and they were also very time-consuming. So uh, Myrowitz goes on to say, there were a number of issues, mechanical and technical, that were interceding. I tried working with a medium format camera in, the, in 1970, a 6x9 centimeter camera, using color negative film, because just about that time I began making my own prints in a darkroom. But that camera was so slow that I began to lose the kind of image that I was making on the street. In other words, the, he didn't have the kind of feedback from the camera of being able to rapidly move through uh, street situations. So I decided, if I'm going to put this camera on a tripod, I might as well put a big camera on a tripod and get back all of that power of description. Consequently, I got an 8 by 10 inch camera and began to photograph. So Myrowitz starts out as a street photographer in black and white and color, uh, moves through uh, some ideas about color photography, and then eventually settles on making, uh, a, uh, 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 making photographs with a large format camera. And he's also known for creating a photographic archive of the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. He was the only photographer to be allowed unrestricted access to Ground Zero from immediately after the attack all the way through uh, the cleanup of uh, the eventual cleanup of the site. Um, and uh, uh, it's sort of interesting because these pictures sort of combine in some ways the idea of the street photograph with some of the other a more contemplative photography that he had done, uh, but these photographs primarily made with the 8 by 10 inch camera. So another photographer who has something in common with Joel Myrowitz is this guy, Thomas Roma. Roma has photographed extensively in his native Brooklyn, narrating scenes from a wide variety of subject matter 
uh, and, and types of places. Scenes from churches, subways, street life, everyday life, inside of people's homes, outside of people's homes. He's exhibited these photo photographs and solo shows at both the Museum of Modern Art and also at the International Center of Photography. And he's also published a fairly large number of artist books of his work. And Thomas Roma has something in common with Dorothea Lange, who created images that frequently juxtapose signs of human courage and dignity with physical evidence of the indignities of troubled lives. Lang once said, you put your camera around your neck along with putting on your shoes. And there it is, an appendage of the body that shares your life with you. The camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera. One of the great photographic quotes of all time. The camera is an instrument that teaches people how to see without a camera. So Lang's concern for people her appreciation of the ordinary, the striking empathy she showed for her subjects made her unique among photographers of her day. And Dorothea Lange had something in common with Walker Evans. Now, of course, one of the things that she had in common with Walker Evans is that they were both photographers for the FSA, the Farm Security Administration, documenting the effects of the Great Depression. Walker Evans once said, stare. It's the way to educate your eye and more. Stare, pry, listen, eavesdrop, die knowing something. You are not here long. And our primary subject for the uh, afternoon, John Zarkowski, said about Walker Evans, he said it was, and is, supposed that Walker Evans' work was basically concerned with the causes of social reform, presumably because his pictures often dealt with humble people and their works. But if his subjects were humble, they were almost never ordinary. It was above all quality that he demanded of them. The subject got no credit for being either grand or modest, esoteric or vulgar, old or new. It got credit only for being good. And by that, I mean full of the record of life or failure or promise or style. Evans was concerned with purifying experience, purifying experience. And Walker Evans had something in common with Andre Kirtesh. John Zarkowski said about Kirtesh, perhaps more than any other photographer, Andre Kirtesh discovered and demonstrated the special aesthetic of the small camera. These beautiful little machines seemed at first hardly serious enough for the typical professional with his straightforward and factual approach to the subject. Most of these, those who did use small cameras tried to make them do what the big camera did better, deliberate analytical description. In addition to the splendid and original quality of formal invention, there is in the work of Kirtesh, and this is Zarkowski going on, another quality less easily analyzed, but surely no less important. It is a sense of the sweetness of life, a free childlike pleasure in the beauty of the world and the preciousness of sight. And Andre Kirtesh had something in common with Jacques-Henri Lartigue. Lartigue, who started making photographs when he was six years old, his subject matter being primarily like any kid of that age, his own life, the people and activities in it, 
So as a child, he photographed his friends and family at play, running and jumping, racing wheeled soapboxes, building kites, gliders, and airplanes, climbing the Eiffel Tower, and so forth. Zarkowski said about Lartigue, the word amateur has two meanings. In its classical sense, it is the antonym of the professional and refers to those who pursue a problem for love rather than for the rewards the world may offer. In this sense, the word often identifies the most sophisticated practitioners in a field. Many of photographers' greatest names have been amateurs as pure as the crocuses of spring, and many others, though mercenaries during the week, have done their best work on weekends. Zarkowski goes on to say, in 1911, when Jacques-Henri Lartigue started to make significant photographs, he was not as merely as unprejudiced as a child. He was a child. By the time he was 10, he was making photographs that would anticipate the best small camera work of a generation later. Lartigue, Zarkowski says, has no perceptible effect on the development of 20th century photography since his work was virtually unknown until half a century and more of the best of it had been done. But when his work came to light, it seemed to confirm the inevitability of what had happened in photography much later when more mature and sophisticated photographers came to understand what the child had found by intuition. And again, all of, all of Lartigue's photographs were made uh, before he was 17, his best photographs, before he was 17. And Jacques-Henri Lartigue had something in common with Eugene Adjaye, and not just that they were French. Eugene Adjaye, born in 1857 and died in 1927, supplied artists and architects and publishers and interior decorators with his photographs of a dreamlike Paris. But he did something else. He was also commissioned by city bureaus to preserve and record landmarks in France's capital city. Zarkowski said about Adjaye, Eugene Adjaye was a commercial photographer who worked in and around Paris for more than 30 years. When he died in 1927, his work was known in part to a few archivists and artists who shared his interest in the visible record of French culture. Little is known about his life and less about his intentions, except as can be inferred from his work. In his lifetime, Atje made perhaps 10,000 photographs. Almost all of these describe the historic character of French life, as indicated by its architecture, its landscape, its work, and its unconsidered vernacular gestures. Ache never called himself a photographer. Instead, he preferred the phrase author-producer. Author-producer. Zarkowski goes on to say about Ache, it might be said that Ache made no portraits, that his pictures of window washers, knife sharpeners, peddlers, postmen, etc., describe the generic role not the individual player. It's remarkable that Atje's collection, when acquired by Bernice Abbott, photographer in her, in her own right, contained not a single portrait of even one of his friends or associates. And Eugene Atje has something in common with Gary Winogrand. Gary Winogrand, born 1928, died 1984. Winogrand was influenced by Walker Evans and Robert Frank and their respective publications, American Photographs and The Americans. Henri Cartier-Bresson was obviously another primal influence, although stylistically quite different. Winogrand was never looking for a pretty photograph. Anticipation and the timing of the taking of the photograph come into, the play of, into play of with all street photographers, and Bresson was one of the best and first, probably, at this aspect 
of the art of street photography. But for Winogrand, street photography was an enterprise of parody, an enterprise of satire. His photographs are often based in broad, coarse humor and founded on uncomfortable confrontations. Winogrand famously said, photography is not about the thing photographed. It's about how that thing looks photographed. Zarkowski said about Winogrand, Winogrand was uninterested in making pictures he knew would succeed. And one might guess that in the last 20 years of his life, excepting his commercial work, he never made an exposure that he was confident would satisfy him. The most widely quoted summation of his position is surely his remark that he photographed in order to see what the things that interested him looked like as photographs. On the surface, it would seem to mean precisely the opposite, says Zarkowski, of what Edward Weston said when he said he wished to pre-visualize his finished print in every detail and tonality before he released the shutter. It should be noted, however, that Winogrand's remark, wanting to see what the world looks like in a photograph, and Weston's remarks are different. Winogrand's remark de defines a motive. Weston's defines a goal. Motivation versus goal. And Zarkowski goes on to say, it should also be understood that Weston defines a goal which, once attained, would be useless. An artist of Weston's relentless, restless, vaunting ambition could not have kept himself amused by manufacturing perfect replicas of pictures that were already perfectly finished in his head and could not reward him with the surprise or thrill of success after doubt. Winogrand's statement and, Win and Weston's statement express a shared fascination central to the work of each in the difference between photographs and the world they describe and in the possibility that the former photograph may nevertheless, if good enough, tell us something important about the latter, the world. So Gary Winogrand has something in common with Darius Kinsey. Darius Kinsey was famous for his documentation of old growth trees and early logging practices. Darius and Tabitha Kinsey were a remarkable husband and wife photographic team whose partnership began uh, in Whatcom County in California in 1896 with Darius taking photographs in the field and Tabitha developing prints in the darkroom. Their partnership continued for 50 years and they captured images of Northwest landscapes, town life, portraits, and various industries. And Darius Kinsey has something in common with Deanne Arbus. Deanne Arbus, born 1923, died 1971. She showed her portfolio to John Zarkowski in 1962. Zarkowski remembers that encounter and said, I didn't really like them, but they were very forceful. And you really felt somebody who was just enormously ambitious, really ambitious, not in any cheap way, but in a most serious way. His opinion changed, and by 1967, Zarkowski was one of Deanne Arbus's strongest advocates. While Arbus was fascinated with the seamy side of New York, transvestites and nudists and strippers and circus freaks, most of her subjects were regular, everyday people. Zarkowski said, the secret of Deanne's success was that she was genuinely interested in her subjects, and she managed to convey this through her strength of personality. She worked with them until they were as interested in her as she was in them. And Deanne Arbus has something in common with August Sander. 
man of the 20th century was Sanders' monumental lifelong photographic project to document the people of his native Westerwald <coughs> near Cologne in Germany. Sander, born in 1876, died in 1964, stated, we know that people are formed by the light and the air, by their inherited traits, by their actions. We can tell from appearance the work someone does or does not do. We can read in his face whether he is happy or troubled. Somebody writing about Sanders' work in 1930 wrote, not long ago, the words photography and art could not be mentioned in the same breath. Photography, that was a kind of technical makeshift aid that made no artistic demands whatsoever on the practitioner. Then, gradually, the notion of artistic photography evolved. But this did not mean the development of artistic laws specific to photography, derived from the material and practical circumstances of the new medium. Rather, the concern was solely to mimic, through photography, the distinct qualities of other art forms, of painting and etching and drawing. And we've seen that, right? This guy's talking about this in 1930. So he says, it is only in our time that photography has developed out of its particular technical capabilities a style of its own, creating out of these very characteristics completely new effects that cannot be achieved in any other form. So this is actually uh, Dr. Louise Strauss Ernst reviewing uh, the work of August Sander. So Sander photographed subjects from all walks of life and created a typological catalog of more than 600 photographs of the German people. Although the Nazis banned the portraits in the 1930s because the subjects did not adhere to the ideal, ideal Aryan stereotype, uh, Sander continued to make photographs. And August Sander had something in common with uh, William Eggleston. Eggleston, born in 1939, still living. Zarkowski said about Eggleston, I have observed that the poem or picture is likely to seem a faithful document if we get to know it first, the poem or the picture, and the unedited reality afterwards. Whereas a new work of art that describes something we had known well is likely to seem as unfamiliar and arbitrary as our own passport photographs. Sarkowski goes on to say, thus, if a stranger sought out in good season the people and places described here in these pictures by Eggleston, they would probably seem clearly similar to their pictures, and the stranger would assume that the pictures mirrored real life. It would be marvelous if this were the case, if the place itself and not merely the pictures were the work of art. These pictures, by William Eggleston, are fascinating partly because they contradict our expectations. We've been told so often of the bland, synthetic smoothness of exemplary American life, of its comfortable, vacant, and sentience, its extruded, stamped, and molded sameness. And in a word, in a word, its irredeemable dullness that we have half come to believe it. As pictures, however, these pictures by Eggleston seem to me to be perfect irreducible surrogates for the experience that they pretend to record. Visual analogs for the quality of one life, collectively a paradigm of a private view, a view one would have thought ineffable, described here with clarity, fullness, and elegance. So the question of what do all these photographers have in common, because you know they're so disparate, right? 
so many different kinds of styles, so many different eras of photography. And the answer of what they all have in common is that John Zarkowski championed them all as artists. He thought of them individually and perhaps collectively as some of the most important photographic artists of their time. So who is this John Zarkowski guy? Properly pronounced Zarkowski, Zarkowski, he was first and foremost a photographer. And probably the most important thing to recognize about this guy is that his career started as a photographer. But the thing that Zarkowski is most known for, you see his birth and death dates up there, born 1925, uh, died just a few years ago in 2007. So, uh, but the thing most people remember him for is that he was director of photography, meaning the primary person making decisions about what went on the walls at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. The Museum of Modern Art generally referred to by most people as MoMA. And he did that job from 1962 to 1991, a really long time period. So he had this long career of being one of the most influential critics and curators of photography of the 21st century. In 1990, when Zarkowski had announced that he was going to retire from MoMA, U.S. News and World Report said, John Zarkowski's thinking, whether Americans know it or not, has become our thinking about photography. John Zarkowski's thinking, whether we know it or not, has become our thinking about photography. So here's this guy who was as influential as Stieglitz and maybe in some ways more influential because unlike Stieglitz, he didn't have to fight the uphill, uphill battle to get photography represented in museums. He already was in a museum. He took on the job of being the director or primary curator of photography at the Museum of Modern Art, considered then in the 1960s as it is now, one of the world's foremost museums of art, certainly of contemporary art. So, He's as influential as Stieglitz, perhaps more influential, but more importantly, he changed the way we look at photographs by teaching us not only how to look, but also teaching us how to see. And he taught the world these things, and he did it in a wide variety of ways. Uh, one of them is through this book, and many other books, and we'll talk about some of his other books. So he wrote this book called Looking at Photographs in 1973. And we have a couple of copies of this book in our library. The subtitle here, for those of you in the back rows, 100 Pictures from the Collection of the Museum of Modern Art. So he took the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, he picked out 100 pictures that he thought had particular significance, and uh, uh, put one photograph on the right-hand side of a page, and then a small essay that occupied the left-hand side of the page. So, through 100-page spreads, a picture on the right-hand side, an essay on the left-hand side, he examined these 100 pictures. And in doing so, he showed people how he was thinking, what he was thinking, what they should look at, God bless you, and taught them how to look, how to look. So when this book came out, here are some of the reviews that, uh, that came along with the book. Hilton Kramer, writing for the New York Times, said, Looking at photographs is a book of breathtaking beauty, a connoisseur's anthology of superlative photographic accomplishment. The New Yorker wrote, 
This is one of the finest photographic anthologies in print, and the short essays by the anthologist, Sarkowski, that face each page show how intelligent, civilized, and noticing he is. John Russell, writing for the Sunday London Times, said, the literature of photography is notably enriched by John Sarkowski's looking at photographs. Pertinent, combative, and not seldom funny. Funny in a book of criticism about photographs? Why, that's kind of unheard of. And this was another part of what made Zarkowski so tremendously influential, is that he would often sort of slyly give a little joke alongside of some of the things that he was writing. The Village Voice wrote, looking at photographs has been called a masterpiece of its kind and confirmed what many critics believed all along, that Zarkowski is just about the best writer in the field. So pretty, pretty good set of reviews. That wouldn't be too bad if that was your book, right? So in this book, and a few others, and we'll talk about some of these other books uh, as we go along here, uh, Zarkowski basically put forth one major tenet, and that was this, that photography was born whole. Zarkowski's central, central theme was that he wanted to get rid of the 19th century notion that photography should emulate other arts, especially painting. He insisted that photography abandon what he called its allegiance to traditional pictorial standards and deal with the particular qualities that it had all to itself. Let me give you that again because I goofed it up. So uh, he insisted that photography abandon its, quote, allegiance to traditional pictorial standards and deal with the particular qualities that it had all to itself. So in other words, he wants to get rid of this whole thing that the 19th century said was happening, right? He didn't really want to think about photography as a replacement for painting. Photography was born whole. And he saw it as a medium that was in fact so born whole that it didn't need to be like anything else. That it had its own basic aesthetic and therefore didn't need to have any other stuff pushed in forward on it. And in a sense, he also came up with a sort of description in five, five uh, pieces that kind of describe what it is that he's thinking about, about this idea of being born whole. He said that there are these five interdependent characteristics that are unique to photography. The thing itself, the detail, the frame, vantage point, and time. The thing itself, detail, the frame, vantage point, and time. The thing itself, he said, Photography is dependent upon its subject. So the thing itself, the, the photograph is always of something. What does the photographer choose to point the camera at? The detail. He said photography has unique to and in, in, in and of itself this ability to capture compelling clarity. So it's detail is another one of these five points. The frame, the act of choosing and eliminating what it is that you choose to put in the frame, and perhaps just as importantly, perhaps even more importantly, what you choose to eliminate from the frame. Vantage point, or point of view, where to stand. Where to stand? Where do you position the camera? Where do you put yourself in the world to show what it is you want to show? And then time, 
noting that all photographs are time exposures in some way, that they all in some way deal with noting the passage of time. So these five things are essentially the five thematic ideas that Zarkowski returns to again and again to kind of measure photography against. Coming back to the central idea that photography is born whole and that it is made up of the thing itself, the detail, the frame, vantage point in time. All right? So these five things are critically important, at least from Zarkowski's point of view. So for Zarkowski, and here are some examples of uh, some of his photographs, the best photographs represent unvarnished truths about their subject. Unvarnished truths. In other words, truth for him was as, an, as important as anything. The best subjects in his mind were usually things that were ultimately ordinary. And his basic tenet of those five things those basic five ideas were based upon sort of that a photograph could be just about of anything. He believed that neither the older arts of painting or drawing nor the classroom gave adequate instruction in photography. In fact, he was adamant in his belief that schooling in photography was detrimental to a photographer's progress in the media. That instead of going to photo school, I'm saying, great, now, now what do I do? <laughs> right? Instead of going to photo school, he said, go live life better, fuller, richer, do more, see more, try more. Because he believed that the photographer's experience and examination of the world at large was really what drove the photographer's basic attitude about what it is that they did and how they did it. Zarkowski's pictures. Another little uh, nugget here from this guy. Photography has learned about its own nature not only from its masters and the great photographers that it has produced, but also from the simple and radical works of photographers of modest aspiration and small renown. Photography has learned about its own nature not only from its great masters, but also from the simple and radical works of photographers of modest aspiration and small renown. And there's a tremendous sense of, doc, of, of democracy to that statement. Before Zarkowski, the idea of importance of the vernacular, of the everyday, of the ordinary things in life, was foreign to a lot of people. It was especially foreign to those who still believed in the ideas of Stieglitz's photo secession and the idea of art photographers distancing themselves from commercial and amateur photography. And Zarkowski sort of championed all these ideas and put them all into the hopper and ground it all up and figured out what came out. So uh, that's all I have to present. What I want to do now is I'll show you this video.